Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. It's a gospel that has, um, is subsequent to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. When uh, Nicodemus, who comes to see Jesus at night, we know because he's afraid of the, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, he's afraid what will happen to him if they know that he's communicating with Jesus. And if they know he's coming to him to kind of be enlightened, to kind of understand and to come to a deeper knowledge of what it means for the Messiah to be among us. And so the gospel begins, Jesus said to Nicodemus, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And this is is an interesting line, and it's an important line, because usually when we speak of the world, we speak of the sinful world, we speak of the fallen world. We, we speak of the things, where, for instance, there is a, a pilgrimage <clears throat> in Ireland where you began the pilgrimage by renouncing the, you know, the flesh, the, 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 the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that, that you know, we reject the planet Earth or the cosmos. It's that we euphemistically are talking about the darkness, the sinfulness that exists within the church, within, within the world. And in referring to that and relying on that, then we come to see the world as a place that is kind of filled with a darkness that is, that is a temptation. That is, uh, we tell about worldly people. And we know, <clears throat> for instance, in, in, uh, in religious life, oftentimes there was, you know, leaving the world, moving away from the world. All of that having some kind of a negative concept <clears throat> or a negative context. And yet here... God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. In this sense, the world is his creation. And it is his creation that he sends his only begotten son as a sign of his total and outpouring love. And I think that sometimes, you know, this, the the power of this kind of sometimes escapes us. It's like, um, what are you going to give for your son? What are you going to do in a gift of your son? You don't entrust your children to someone that you don't love, someone that you don't care for. You don't send your children into <clears throat> a dangerous situation in which you are no longer, would no longer be able to protect them or be, or, or be around them. But God has a, has a mission for the world, and that mission <clears throat> is, to, is to redeem it to draw it into the life of his Son and therefore into the life of all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. And this outpouring of God's love for us is personified, just as, for instance, in Revelation. We say Revelation is not the printed word. Revelation is the person. And, uh, and, that's, and that's true. And then we say that God's love is also a person. So just as just as in, um, in the, uh, 
word in Revelation, Logos being the person of the Christ, and we can say, you know, that therefore Revelation is person, and we come to know Revelation through coming to know the person, and the person is embedded within the church, and our relationship with the church draws us into the Son, and in him through the church we then begin to understand the whole order of nature, the whole order of creation, the whole purpose and destiny of ourselves. Well, it's in that sense then that God so loves the world. He loves the world because he wants to redeem it. And he has such a powerful love for the world that he imparts his word, which is revelation, and his love, which is his son also. Logos and Caritas, both of those are in fact the person of Christ. <clears throat> And he says, why does he do this then? So that everyone who believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. In other words, the love that God has for us and the outpouring of his son into our world and into ourselves is there so that we might have eternal life, so that we might not be lost, so that we might not be in the midst of darkness but we might have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that so through him, the world might be saved. What, what has happened too, and this comes to us in, in this third chapter of John, certainly later on also, in, in, in John, um, I think it's, well, in John 12, um, I'm not mistaken, John 12, 37, yes. Though they had been present when he gave so many signs, they did not believe in him. And uh, that the, what happened was the world had fallen into disbelief. And we see this disbelief in the shallowness and the superficiality of the professional religionists, um, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, the Sadducees, um, all of those people. They had turned, they had kind of turned Judaism um, and the religion of the covenant into kind of a family business. <clears throat> it made them a lot of money and it gave them a lot of social status and a lot of social position and it did a lot for them. And, uh, but they, not God, controlled the product that they sold. They, not God, provided the, the, the words of the covenant. And so since they were the words of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and so forth, they were not God's word any longer. They had been so embedded in humanity that they became the words of sinful men then instead of the words of the covenant. And so <clears throat> God says, well, God decided that his son would have to come down and undo that. And, and you know, there's this constant underlying problem, constant underlying question there. Why did he have to do that? He created us. Why didn't he just make us so that we didn't do those kinds of things? Why didn't he make us so that we were kind of did what he wanted and be kind of, kind of, um, kind of little um, marionettes in a way in the world? And the reason certainly is because God is love. And love is always relational. And relationality is never deep and never real unless it's free. In other words, you can have what we call, you know, codependency where someone 
it's not really love. They just need someone else so much they don't know what else to do without them. That's not the what God wants of us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants some mutuality with us. That's the whole purpose of creating, re, of creating humanity. That's the reason humanity rises above the angelic order in the final, in the, in the, in the redemption of the world because there is relationality and God is relational. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are bound together in one person because of their love for each other. The love that is so intense and so extreme and so infinite in its power that while they don't lose their identity as Father, Son, and Spirit, they are one and they become one in the God that we know, the God of Revelation. And so this is the example of what God wants to extend to the world. He wants to give this loving relationality to the whole world because he knows that it is the source <clears throat> of unity and he knows that it is a source of fulfillment and he knows that it is a source of joy <coughs> and he knows that it is the source of ultimate happiness and goodness. And he wants us to have that. And so he must then court us, as it were. And that <coughs> he doesn't say, you know, um, I made you and I'll make you do whatever I want you to do. He makes us the gift. It's unbelievable what he's done for us. He's given us our life. He's given us our world. He's given us all those people in this world that we care about. He's done all of that for us. He's given us everything, everything. And then all he wants us to do is to love him for that, is to respond to him, is to say to the best of my ability, Lord, I maybe can't love you as much as I can someone who's very close and near to me physically, but I love you in another way. I love you as a child loves a parent. I love you more than a child loves a parent. I love you because you gave me life. I love you because you take care of me. I love you because you look after me. I love you because you have given me um, everything I have in this world. And I am so deeply appreciative. I want to know you better. I want to get closer to you. I realize and I know that I do that primarily in the early years of my life through other people, through parents, through friends, through husbands, through wives, through children, and so forth. That's how I learn what it means. That's how I learn what it means to give to you. That's how I learn what it means that when true love is where you care about the well-being of the other more than you care for yourself. This is why martyrdom is raised up in the church to such a high degree, because the good of the Lord Jesus is more important to those people than their own lives. And that's the living, concrete, existential witness to that. So we, we, have, to, we have to get this to understand what this gospel is. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. That's what it means. He loved us so much that he gave us his son in order to help us to stand up, as St. Bernard said, to stand up straight and to look upward into the future, into the hope and into the fulfillment of all human desire, all human need. 
He said he does that so that everyone who believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. He doesn't want people to be lost. He doesn't want people. God does not wish the death of a sinner, but that he be converted and live, the scripture says. This is what God wants us to do, and he wants us with him for all eternity. And we do that by joining ourselves to Jesus Christ. We do it by joining ourselves to Jesus Christ in the church. We do it through the sacraments. We do it in our prayer. We do it in our hearts. We do it in our mind. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world. And this he's saying very clearly um, to Nicodemus. You know that the Hebrews had an expectation of the Messiah as the one who was going to come and just wipe everybody out. He was going to come and he was going to get rid of all those bad and evil people and all those people who did everything wrong, and he was going to exalt the Israelites, and they were going to have this powerful, this wonderful kingdom. All of these things were going to happen to them, all of these good things, and all the bad people were going to be gone. They were going to be crushed. They were going to be exposed for who they were. And, you know, that's not love. That's not love. That's primitive. That's going back to... Boy, when the Messiah comes, I'm getting revenge on all those people who've done me wrong. I'm going to get revenge on all those people who have been bad people. And, you know, it is, we, we have to be so careful of that because we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to group hate. And, um, and this is the foundation. This is one of the wicked things about wars. You know, you, you, you have to you stir up the people to hate somebody, and then you can kill them with a good conscience. Um, no. I mean, I don't know. You go back through the wars and you say, my word, you know, what in the world was that all about? I think that, you know, I think one of the, one of the few things that, that we see that was worth the war that we fought was perhaps you know, the, uh, the Second World War and the, the rise of the Third Reich um, and their persecution of those people they hated, the Jews and the disabled and the mentally ill and the Slavs and the priests and the nuns. There's vast graveyards of priests and nuns in, at Mauthausen uh, Death Camp and at the others as well. Um, so, so, yeah... So to stop that slaughter of those who the Nazis hated, maybe that was a worthwhile war. World War I was not. And, uh, and as, as interesting as it is for so many people, uh, many of us struggle with the idea of the Civil War too. Um, <clears throat> and especially with, because the aftermath of it was so dark and so bad. And so, so basically then... You know, this idea, we're going to get even, we're going to get them. No, Jesus said, no, that's not right. That's not why Jesus came. He did not come to be that kind of a Messiah. He came to be the Messiah who loves. He came to be the Messiah who, who wants to save the world, to bring it out of that darkness, to bring it away from that hatred, to bring it away from that revenge, to bring it in the fullness of its what it could become, the fullness of its capacity to become what God created it to be. For no one who believes in him will be condemned. 
In other words, now we get to the issue of belief, of faith, and this is something that Nicodemus has struggled with. For, for they did not believe, and remember over and over again we see the examples of this. We see the example of the man born blind, and they say, and they, they deliberately, the Pharisees deliberately distort the understanding of sin in the Old Testament. Well, did you sin or did your parents sin? Is that why you're blind? No, no. They know that's not what they think. They know that it's a story of the corporate sinfulness of humanity and that it stems from the beginning and that the Lord is the one who can lift it. They know that. They know you can't make that direct connection. It's either you or your parents have caused your, your blindness by sinning. That's, that's juvenile. And they know it. And they know they're wrong. But they don't want to believe. And the blind man even says to him, why are you asking me this? Do you want to be his follower too? And then, of course, they become totally enraged. And so he says that no one who believes in him will be condemned. We, faith does lead us into the depths of the mystery of God. It leads us toward the sacraments. It leads us into the church. It leads us into the mystery of God. It does not itself alone save us, but it leads us to salvation. And it helps us to participate in the means that the Lord gives us to be saved. And when he leaves behind with his disciples, what he leaves behind are his sacraments, which is a form of his presence in every age and every time and every place that attracts, that draws, that heals, that changes the lives of people. And then he said, but whoever refuses to believe is condemned already. You know, there's all sorts of different kinds of disbelief. If someone who does not know Christianity encounters Christians who are reprehensible, are they guilty for not believing? I don't know. Probably not. St. Francis Xavier thought that somehow it wasn't their fault that when he went to Goa and he tried to preach to the indigenous people there, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he writes back to Ignatius. I've used this example often, but it's a wonderful example. He, he writes back to Ignatius and he says, you know, I can't do anything here to convert these people because the Christians' lives are so scandalous that they don't take anything I say seriously. So the Christians are able then to destroy faith. That's not the kind of unbelief that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kind of unbelief that he experiences with the scribes and the Pharisees and so forth, the Sadducees, that when he performs a miracle, for instance, in the healing of the man born blind, they refuse to believe that that's what he did. When they raise someone, they refuse to believe that's what someone did. When he himself raises from the dead, pay the guards, tell them to say his body was stolen. Don't let anybody know what really happened. Decep deception, deception, deception. And along with the deception is uh, our of course, the intent to keep people from believing as the Lord, as the Lord has, has taught him uh, to believe. And so I think then that we don't have to say, well, just everybody who's an unbeliever is condemned. No, the ones who should know and refuse, they're the ones this gospel is talking about. They're the ones.
because they have refused to believe in the Father's love. They have refused to believe in the gift of his Son. They have refused to believe in the spirit of truth that he brings into the world. They have refused to believe all of that, all of that. And yet, at the same time, in believing all of that, they then refuse, they, they simply say, no. And to those, Jesus says, they are condemned. So let us not encounter unbelievers and say, well, the gospel says you're condemned. We don't know the inner struggle. We don't know the inner action. We don't know the inner workings of those persons' minds and those persons' hearts. All we know is that God cares for them and would like them to believe and wants them to believe and wants them to turn toward his son. But whoever refuses to believe is condemned already because he has refused to believe in the name of God's only son because they have refused to believe. There's a difference between refusal and not knowing. And I, think that, <clears throat> and, I, and I think that we have to concentrate on that very much, especially when we, when, especially when we, we talk about um, you know, the, the, the missionary activity of the church. We talk about evangelization. We talk about trying to move the church forward. We talk about all those kinds of things. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, we know that there are people who, who we, we're, not going to, we're not going to connect with, we're not going to make any contact with. And those are the ones that in Luke's Gospel, where it says, you know, shake the dust from your feet and move on. Those who could know and should know and refuse to know are not the ones to whom we should spend our time. The ones who do not know, the ones who have not heard, the ones who have not seen. Certainly in our culture, we can't say there's anybody that doesn't know about the existence of Christianity, whatever it might be to them. But we do know that many of them do not understand it. Many of them do not comprehend it. Many of them have not had positive experiences of what it means in their world and in their life. Those are the ones then to whom we are sent, to whom the church is sent. So when we take this gospel then and we kind of put it together, it's interesting that the church uses this uh, for one of the readings on the, on the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity, when there are so many very powerful Trinitarian passages in the Gospel of St. John, and this one does not seem to be one of them to us, and yet it is. God loved the world so much that he gave us his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. The Father and the Son working together to bring us into their midst, into their personhood, in for all eternity, to make us participate deeply to the very depth of our souls, eventually in the divinity itself, in God himself. We do not find here the Spirit, but we will find the Spirit. And we will find the Spirit then. Who is the one who is going to teach? Who is the one that is going to enable? Who is the one then who is going to make it possible for the Word of God to sink into the hearts of those who are should be and could be open to it, but have not received it, experienced it, heard it, or known it. It is the Spirit of the Lord. 
And so the salvation of humanity obviously is the work of the Trinity. It is the work, if, if the Father had not sent the Son, if the Son had not sent the Spirit, then we would not be saved and we would not know the way to salvation because we would be ignorant. We would be, we would be able to say, you know, there is a Messiah, but it's not who we thought it was going to be, so we don't understand what it means. That's the role of the Spirit. Help us to understand what it means. Help us to understand what it means that God so loves the world that he's sending his only Son. I think that when, when we, we simply, it's very hard for us to understand the immensity of that love. We have to put it into human terms to understand it ourselves. And certainly that's what the Incarnation is. It is putting into human terms the love of God for us and the work of God for us in our hearts and in our souls. It is giving us inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves a place of contact, a place of understanding. We can know that Jesus as man is someone we can come to know. We know that he is present to us in sacrament and he remains with us as such and therefore in some ways remains for, to us incarnate in the material world and as, as it is expressed to us in the signs and the matter of the sacraments. So that basically then, <clears throat> we, we, we ponder that and we, th we think, for instance, we, we know that in the human arena and the human realm, there is often the case where a human being will give themselves up for the sake of the one that they love. This is the best we can do with our understanding of God's love for us. We see it in the passion and the death of the Son. We can see it also in the realm of our own human experience. Parents who sacrifice their life for their children. Um, <clears throat> people who, who sacrifice their lives for the sake of those who are persecuted, for the sake of those who are hunted, for the sake of those who are killed. And, and, and we, we see that, we, we see the courage, for instance, often of the foreign missionaries. We see the courage of the giving away of their lives of one thing that we realized as, as small children, actually. And in the Catholic schools, we realized that the women who taught us, the sisters who taught us, had given their lives away for us. And, um, and while we didn't re respond as adults to that, but as, as, as children to that, um, actually, it was buried deep, deep, deep within our own sense of the worthiness of the faith was that someone was willing to give us their life so that we might have it. Um, I, I know that, that there are many older people who have had that experience. And, uh, and not only, of course, the religious women, but the priests, but mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and friends and teachers and so forth. It's it's. It's the nobility of the human spirit which manifests to us the purpose and the power of believing and of loving in such a way that we come to understand God's sacrifice, the Father's sacrifice of his Son, and the Son's sacrifice of himself for us. That we only see this in the nobility of the, the incredible nobility of the human person, the ones who give their lives away for the sake of others. 
and that certainly we see this in many families. We see this again in, in, in the experiences of long ago and in the, the religious women who did that for us. Um, we, we know all of this and we have seen all of this. And we know then when we read, God loved the world so much that he gave us his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not be lost but may have eternal life. We know what that means. Let us reflect on that and pray over that in our lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So